0: In today's passage, we reach one of the high points, not just of Exodus, but of the whole Bible. God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea and sustaining them in the desert. They have reached Mount Sinai, and we are going to watch as God gives them the famous Ten Commandments. For today's Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 19, verse 1-8 to 8, in page, on page 19, 104. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel came there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried on eager wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and said before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord had said. So Moses brought their answers back to the Lord. The next reading is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 17. The next page on 105. punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuse his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord Your God, on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughters, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor.
1: Thanks, Min Lee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, we thank You that it always does Your work, Uh, so we pray um, this day, uh, shape us more in the likeness of Your Son and enable us to live lives that glorify Him. Amen. Okay, can I ask you please to turn in your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 19 uh, and also to take out the leaflet that you're given as you came in, you'll see on the inside as usual... There's a pretty detailed outline, a couple of other Bible passages have been printed there for you, so you'll find it helpful to have that open in front of you. (laughs) And you'll see at the top left on the handout that I want to start by just pointing out a few common misconceptions about Christianity. A few common misconceptions about Christianity. Here are a few. Uh, Science and faith are fundamentally incompatible. That is, belief in God is irrational. Here's another one. If you pray hard enough, and you use the right words, God will bless your every endeavour. And here's a third one. Christianity is all about keeping rules and regulations to earn God's favour. Because good people go to heaven. Uh, that is, it's basically the grown-up version of Santa, who only rewards the well-behaved kids. Now today, we've come to one of the most well-known parts of the Bible that I think is also one of the most misunderstood, uh, both by Christians and by unbelievers. I think that almost everyone reckons that the Ten Commandments, they give a list of requirements, some do's and don'ts, that you must strictly adhere to, either to earn God's favour or at least to avoid His punishment. The fact that there are over 600 Old Testament laws does little, I think, to dispel that myth. It's the reason why, little wonder, someone who's not a Christian has almost no incentive to check God out. And I suspect the mere thought of being told you have to give up Sunday morning sleep-ins to go to church is a deal-breaker. At the same time, no wonder that Christians can lack assurance, because the longer we follow Jesus, the more aware we become of God's holiness and the more dismayed we are by our ongoing sinfulness. All of that, to be frank, makes me wonder why we've chosen to put a board with the Ten Commandments on the back of our church. What message do you think that sends, particularly to newcomers? Now, I'll come back to this later. My only comfort is probably you didn't even realize. Um, So, that's good. Uh, But here's my big idea for today. You'll see it there on your handout. Big idea. God's law is less about rules and regulations and more about relationships. God's law is less about rules and regulations and more about relationships. Relationships with God... And relationships with each other. And what I want to do today is show how, contrary to our instinctive reaction, God's law is actually very, very good. So, come with me on your handout then. Point one God's people are his treasured possession. God's people are his treasured possession. Pick it up with me in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, page 104. I'm going to read the first two verses. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert, in front of the mountain. Okay, in this story that we're following, God's people have finally made it to Mount Sinai. And in so doing, they're actually fulfilling the promise that God made to Moses, back when He called him from the not-burning bush... Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, printed there on your handout. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I'll be with you. This will be the sign that is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. What's more, uh, the reference in verse 3 reminds us of the bigger and better story that's been unfolding. Look at verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Now, the reference to the descendants of Jacob, uh, that reminds us of this bigger and better story that's actually been unfolding since Genesis 12. You see the diagram on your handout? You've seen it lots of times throughout this series. 430 years before... Jacob and his 12 sons had migrated to Egypt to escape a brutal famine. Now, in Exodus, God has rescued them from forced slavery and He's taking them to the land that He originally promised Abraham, a land that flowing, that's flowing with milk and honey. So, at the birth of this new nation, God speaks to His people through Moses. And you'll see what He says in verses 4 through 6, so follow along with me. Verse 4, God says... You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, two takeaways from what God says to his people. They're both printed there on your handout. Firstly, we see God's initiative and primacy in salvation we see God's initiative and primacy in salvation. Contrast what God did to Egypt with what He is now doing for Israel, Uh, even though, as we've seen time and time again in this series, it's not like Israel was any better or more deserving. Verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. It's a lovely phrase, I think, that's... Well, it's, it's less, you found me. It's much more about God's search and rescue mission. God is saying, I looked everywhere for you, I searched high and low, and finally I found you. So now I'm taking you home. So... Firstly, we see God's initiative and primacy in salvation. Secondly, there in your handout, we see how Israel is to respond to God's unmerited favour. We see how Israel is to respond to God's unmerited favour. And this particularly in verse 5 If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, You will be my treasured possession." That's another lovely phrase, isn't it? My treasured possession. Uh, It invokes an image of your favourite toy or a cherished keepsake. And the reason is because God doesn't just save His people from slavery in Egypt, He also saves them for adoption to sonship, to be brought into His family. Uh, We saw that idea back in Exodus chapter 4, there on your handout, Exodus 4, Moses is to say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. Now, I wonder, do you have a cherished keepsake? Do you have a treasured possession? I'm not going to make a habit out of this, but I brought another prop this week... Um, So, I'm not going to make a habit, but I did, I brought another prop. Um, This one here, you'll see a picture of it on the screen. Um, It should be on the screen behind me. It's actually a photo um, that hangs in my office. Uh, It's the only thing, actually, that was left to me from my grandfather. Uh, It's a picture of my great-grandfather. He was a Presbyterian minister in southern China at the turn of the 20th century. He was raised a Christian because his mother, my great-great-grandmother, she became a Christian in the mid-1800s when British missionaries, faithful to Christ's command to make disciples of all nations, came to their village. I have this hanging in my office, because it's a reminder, I think, for me at least, of how God's favour to those who came before me, Uh, I'm the beneficiary even today. Notice how, in Exodus, God's unmerited favour that He lavishes on Israel, it highlights the fact that they are chosen out of all nations. Out of all nations, He has chosen Israel. Now, I want to acknowledge that the word unprecedented clearly gets overused, but actually, this time, it's truly unique. Never before in the history of the world has a God chosen to limit Himself to just a single nation? To tie His fortunes to theirs? I mean, you can sense how risky that is. Whatever happens to that nation is going to reflect directly on God. No people has ever heard God speak to them directly, until now. Look at how Moses puts it in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, it's printed there on your handout. This is Moses speaking to the people. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire, as you have, and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for Himself one nation out of another nation? By testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes. And yet, remembering that bigger and better story that God is writing, well, it means that God's plan was always for more than just Abraham's biological descendants. It was always for more than just Israel. And we see that in the last part of this passage, pick it up with me in verse 5. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the word kingdom of priests, it has two meanings. On the one hand, a kingdom of priests suggests that everyone in the entire nation will be allowed to approach God directly. You don't need a priestly class, not if it's a kingdom of priests. But secondly... It says that Israel, as a whole, as a holy nation under God, it was to intercede for all the other nations of the world that did not know Him yet. Which, of course, is exactly what God had promised Abraham. That He would be a blessing, but that through Him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So, the big question that we come to at the end of chapter 19 is will God's people rise to the challenge? Will God's people obey Him fully and keep His covenant? Will they become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Well, I thought I'd do a quick survey at this point. Given what we've seen so far, put your hand up if you think the answer to that question, will God's people obey his command, uh, obey Him fully and keep His covenant? Put your hand up if you think the answer is yes. Wow, pessimistic lot. <laughs> what if you think the answer is no? Actually, that's all of you, isn't it? Yeah, actually, you are quite pessimistic. Well, I'm really pleased to say that for once you're wrong. At least for once they start well. Look at verse 8. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And yet sadly, actually, you and I know that they don't follow through. And here's the thing. When they fail, for some of us at least, it will just confirm what we suspected all along, that if you disobey God, He'll abandon us. So, point two then, the Ten Commandments. Look at the right-hand side of your handout and we come to chapter 20. Chapter 20. Uh, We get to the Ten Commandments themselves. I hope you can see that they are the first and most basic summary of what it means for Israel to obey God fully and keep His covenant. Notice how they begin, verse 1. Verse 1, God spoke all these words. God spoke all these words. It's another reminder of God's kindness and goodness. God speaks and He speaks to His people. Or to put it slightly differently, God never gives his people the silent treatment. And that that's such a stark contrast with the pantheon of ancient near eastern gods who were generally incommunicado. And that's the reason why the people had to resort to extreme measures like self-flagellation or worse, child sacrifice. They did it just to try to get the attention of the gods. Not the God of Israel. He's a God who speaks. And the first thing he says, even before he comes to the commandments, is another reminder of how much he has already done for his people. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, they already know that. They're standing there in the desert. But he says it again, I think, to remind them of what a great basis it is for a relationship. This is a relationship born not out of obligation, this is a relationship born out of a gift that's freely given. In other words, the Ten Commandments, they cannot be any more clearly framed. The Ten Commandments, they are not about what we must do to earn God's favour, they are not key performance indicators to meet, they are not benchmark hurdles we must clear. The Ten Commandments describe how we instinctively respond when God has been so unbelievably good to us in the first place. In the case of Israel, He has carried them on eagles' wings, He has brought them to Himself as His treasured possession. And you and I, we know from any relationship that there is a world of difference between thankfully receiving a gift... And desperately trying to earn a reward, never being quite sure if you've done enough to deserve it. Actually, back to the Ten Commandments that are on the back wall of our church, the one positive thing I can say about them is that at least they're on the inside wall of the church, not on the front door facing out to North Terrace. Because You can imagine the kind of impression that would give, the wrong impression that would give to anyone who is thinking of joining us. It would say, unless you keep all these, don't even bother coming in. So, to the Ten Commandments themselves, in verses 3 through 17. Remember, they are the first and most basic summary of how we obey God fully and keep His covenant. Now, obviously, I'm not going to go through them line by line today. Instead, all I want to do is offer just three big-picture theological reflections on what they mean. And you'll see each of them printed there on your handout. So, three reflections. Firstly, the vertical and the horizontal. Now, as you know, one of my favourite sayings is that the vertical always shapes the horizontal. How God treats us, the vertical, it shapes the horizontal, how we treat each other. And you see that, actually, in the Ten Commandments. The first four of them, they are vertical, they're about how we relate to God... The next six, they are horizontal about how we relate to each other. The vertical ones come first, as they should. But our relationship to God shapes the way in which we should treat each other. I take it that's because God wants us to live in right relationship, not just with Him. He wants us to live in right relationship with each other. That's a measure of how much God cares for us. I mean, let let me put it this way. It wouldn't be much of a rescue if he didn't his, it wouldn't be much of a rescue from Egypt if God didn't enable his people to live well together in the promised land. So the vertical always shapes the horizontal, and this is one of the ways in which I think it starts to shift our mind shift our mindset when it comes to the Ten Commandments. you see They are not rules and regulations designed to restrict and limit my freedom. The Ten Commandments, they're an invitation for all of us to go further than we might otherwise have dared in our relationships with each other. And the only basis for doing that is a confidence that everyone else is trying to do the same. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, If you have ever taught someone to drive, or if you're learning to drive, you'll know that there are a lot of rules and regulations you have to read about before you can begin. I want to say that I think it really is better for all of us when everyone agrees to follow every one of those road rules. If you've ever been to a country where people don't, (laughs) you know exactly what I mean. Or to be more serious... If you've ever lived in a lawless place, maybe you fled one to be here today, you will know the horror of anarchy and chaos. The six horizontal commandments in the Ten Commandments, they create a web of social relationships where people don't just tolerate each other or even just coexist with each other. They describe a community where people actually love each other. Why? Well, because of the vertical. Because all of us want to love God, who loved us first. No wonder, I think, that Jesus will sum up the entire of the law, you know, if 10 commandments is too many to remember, Jesus will sum them up in just two. Love God, love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, Interestingly, this is not often acknowledged. He's just quoting Leviticus 19 at that point. It's there on your handout. What it's saying is that even if we never fully get there, this is the kind of community that we are aiming for. These are the kinds of relationships we strive for. And so, as I've already talked about, you'll see there's a reminder on your page If you're new or newish, I'd love to invite you to join us at Belong next week because, as I said, though we're not perfect, this is the kind of place that we want to be and we'd love for you to become part of us as well. Okay, there's the first comment, about the vertical and the horizontal. Second comment, even the do-nots contain wonderful blessings. Even the do-nots contain wonderful blessings. Look with me at the second commandment in verse 4. Thou shalt not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, that's the reason why I showed you that photo before of my treasured possession, because it reminds me, at least in part, of one of the reasons why I'm a Christian today. It's because of God's promises to those who came before me. And, as a slight sidestep, that's one of our hopes and dreams around moving to all-age AM gatherings, because actually, God's promise is not just to biological descendants, God's promise is... For his favor to the generations to come of his people, even the do-nots contain wonderful blessings. Likewise, the fifth commandment, uh, the fifth commandment. If you turn over on uh, verse twelve, honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So that you may live long in the Lord your God is in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, can I say that when the fifth commandment adds that? extra proviso, it's not, a, it's not utilitarianism, it's not self-interest, even though it could feel that way. Actually, what it is, is just another reminder of God's unmerited favour, of His extraordinary, all-pervasive, all-encompassing generosity. You know, I made some comments about the Ten Commandments on the back wall. I'd feel much better if the signboard of them also included these very wordy but wonderful promises as well. Made them long, but it will be a reminder that even the do-nots contain wonderful blessings from God. Because, come back to the big idea with which I began, this is why God's law is very, very good. It says that God cares about us enough to insist, let me show you the best way that my people can flourish and thrive. Four, he doesn't just save us from slavery, he saves us for sonship and adoption into his family. Third and final reflection, uh, there on your handout, how do you feel about God's law then? Burdened or liberated? How do you feel about God's law? Burdened or liberated? To be honest, I guess it all depends. I guess it depends on what you really hear. In the Ten Commandments, do you hear all the things you cannot do? Or do you hear all the things others cannot do to you? And how wonderful it is when everyone lives like this. What I'm trying to say today is that God's law is good because it's neither burdensome nor restrictive, it is wonderfully liberating. And even those first four vertical commandments, they don't impose an impossible standard that we cannot keep. Rather, because God has already chosen us and redeemed us, His law is a blessing that illustrates how we respond to His mercy In a way that delights him it's just like any human relationship actually if you love someone you want to know how to bring them pleasure and if they tell you how you can do so that makes it a lot easier so let me ask you again how do you feel about god's law burdened or liberated What's your gut reaction to all of these rules and regulations? Is it despair or is it joy? Well, I suspect your answer will depend partly on how good you think you are, how capable you think you are of keeping them. Some of us here, like me to be honest, are far too overconfident. We think we do much better than we actually do. Others amongst us But we constantly feel like rubbish, because we know how imperfect we are. But what I want to say today is that both are wrong, because both miss the point about the goodness of God's law. See, God's law is meant to humble the proud. We needed God to save us in the very first place. And at the same time, God's law is meant to exalt the lowly. Because it says you are so precious to Him that He wants you to thrive and flourish in every way possible. So, I trust that you get why we spent time this morning saying Psalm 19 together. I've reprinted just a few verses there for you, on your handout. Verse 9. The decrees of the Lord are firm, all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. You sense the magnitude of the comparison, don't you? Nothing is more valuable than gold. Now, look, I know, of course, there are some minerals out there that go for more per ounce, But you get the point, right? Nothing is more valuable than gold. Nothing is sweeter than honey from the comb. And again, I know there are synthetic diabetes-inducing substances out there. But you understand the point, don't you? This is God's law we are talking about. And it's wonderful because it brings life and life to the full. And it's saying to us that if we delight in it, and if we cherish it, and if we treasure it, then we will do so every day. Well, let me just make one final comment. Uh, So far, all of this has been directed to God's Old Testament people, Israel. They're the original recipients of the Ten Commandments. So, how does it apply to us? How does it apply to us, Christians? Well... Throughout this series, I've been saying we belong to a bigger and better story, which means that we Christians know that God's first promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, they weren't just blessings for ethnic Israel. Ultimately, they were to be blessings for all the nations of the world. In lots of ways, 1 Peter 2, I think, best captures both God's favor to us and our ongoing response. Let me read these words from 1 Peter 2, printed there on your handout. You'll notice the echoes with Exodus 19. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as brothers exile, as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. God's messenger Moses came to speak to Israel. God's son Jesus came to save us from all the ways we have failed to live up to God's standards and expectations. Well, point three, 40 days and 40 nights, what did happen next? Did Israel obey God fully and keep His covenant? Well, in chapter 24, Moses is going to go up the mountain to get the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them. I acknowledge, presumably, that's so they wouldn't forget them, so... I get why it's helpful to display them on a wall for believers to see. As he goes up the mountain, he leaves Aaron in charge. But 40 days and 40 nights is a long time. And sadly, things go pear-shaped. Min Lee's going to come up and she's going to read for us Exodus 24, verses 12 to 18. And after that, we're going to stand and sing together. But let me give you a spoiler alert. Today is going to finish on a cliffhanger. Come back next week for the final chapter in this epic saga. Thanks, All
0: right, let's turn to the Bible again on Exodus 24, verse 12 to 18, on page 112 of the Pew Bible. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instructions. Then Moses set up with jo- Joshua his aid, and Moses went up on the mountains of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in the dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountains, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountains, and he stayed on the mountains 40 days and 40 nights.